0: Dennis Kroner has worked as a public safety officer at NYU for 36 years. And despite having to deal with rascally college kids all day long, it's a pretty great job.
1: It seems like the same thing every day. Yeah. But you're always getting different things every day. Yeah, yeah.
0: Dennis oversees a collection of handsome stone buildings that abut Washington Square in Manhattan's Greenwich Village. They were all built around the turn of last century, so it's safe to say a lot of history has happened in those spaces. Do you feel any particular way in the building? Like, does it give you, like, <laughs> you know, like... Like if I feel
1: haunted, like somebody following me?
0: Yeah. It seems like the question of whether Dennis's buildings are haunted comes up a bunch. A
1: lot of the kids that come into school here go, is the building haunted? Right. right. And like, what buildings in New York aren't haunted? <laughs>
0: it's, it's probably true. That's probably true. There's a lot. Of- now, I'm not really a believer in the supernatural, but it makes sense that the spirit world is invoked when people talk about the buildings Dennis watches over. See, one of Dennis's buildings, the Brown Building, some really bad stuff happened there.
1: Well, it's, it started to be famous back in 1911 when they had the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Right. Okay, where 146 people died.
0: The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Until the events of 9-11 happened, it was the worst workplace tragedy in New York City's history. And it happened eight floors above where we were standing.
2: In the heart of New York City Near Washington Square In 1911 March winds were cold and bare A fire broke out in a building Ten stories high And 146 young girls In those flames did die
1: The doors were chain-locked People couldn't get out. Mm -hmm. That's why people jumped from the ninth floor and the tenth Mm floor.
0: Can you even imagine that now? Like, I mean, you're in that building all the time.
1: Can you imagine? Well, after seeing the World Trade Center and seeing the people jump out of there, I can imagine it. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen it. Right,
0: right. At the time, the factory was the largest producer of women's blouses in a city filled with garment manufacturing. The fire took the lives of almost a third of the factory's workers, mostly young immigrant women who were Italian or Jewish. But the disaster didn't have to happen. It could have been prevented if only the owners had focused a little more on safety and a little less on profit. The Triangle Fire was an unequivocal catastrophe, but it's hard to fathom where the American labor movement would be without it. The aftermath of the fire changed the course of labor in this country. It ushered in many of the rights and protections that American workers enjoy today. Higher wages, safer conditions, and a prohibition on child labor. All things we're pretty into now. In spite of these advances, the problems that led to the Triangle Fire haven't gone away. Not even close. I'm Lauren Ober, and from American Public Media and the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota... This is Spectacular Failures, the show where we let failure borrow our favorite shirt, even though we know we'll never get it back. If you were a woman at the turn of the last century, you would know the Gibson girl. Well, not personally, because she wasn't real. She was just a drawing. But you would know of her. She was the very picture of a young, white, feminine, upwardly mobile woman. In today's parlance, she would be... That bit when illustrator Charles Dana Gibson created his eponymous girl, he gave her a long, slim neck, an impossibly tiny midsection, and a voluptuous but never lewd bust. Atop her head, Gibson piled a loose chignon of curls that fell effortlessly away from her delicate yet disinterested face. And the Gibson girl was everywhere newspapers, magazines,
3: burnt on leather, printed on plates. Memorialized in vaudeville shows and on film, the Gibson girl captured an era with her independence, self-assurance, and above all, her beauty.
0: Which is what people say about me, coincidentally. Just kidding. The Gibson girl soon became the beauty standard of the day. Women wanted to emulate her in all respects. They wanted to go cycling and make fun of dodo men, and they wanted to look good doing
4: it. And that meant wearing an article of clothing called the shirtwaist. A shirtwaist is a variation on a waist, and a waist was the standard term used for what we would call a blouse.
0: That's Dr. Jean Parsons. She's a professor at the University of Missouri in the textile and apparel management department.
4: A shirtwaist became a variation that was styled like a a menswear shirt with collar cuffs, a more tailored style.
0: Basically, think of a regular women's shirt with cuffs and collars, but cut in a blousey V-shape, narrow at the waist. Maybe there was some embroidery, maybe some lace, maybe some sexy little pearl buttons. They were basically like the jeans of the day. Every woman wore them, and you could dress them up or dress them down. Here's a shirtwaist ad from the 1905 Sears Roebuck catalog.
3: Very attractive waist, made of white lawn. Entire front is pleated and is made very neat with flower design embroidery in the newest buttonhole effect. Pleated sleeve, detachable crushed collar. Color, white only price 89 cents. If by mail, postage extra 15 cents.
4: I'm sold. I'll take 20. It's the first truly worn by everyone mass-produced piece of clothing. You could buy a shirtwaist that ranges in price from 49 cents up to 15 or 20 dollars. So there's a huge range. You can look at images of women. You can look at groups of, um, say, high school graduates, and they're all wearing shirtwaists.
0: By the late 1800s, these shirtwaists were everywhere. But they weren't yet made in big factories. They were largely produced in people's living rooms, in tenement sweatshops. And it really wasn't a great scene. David Favaloro of New York City's Tenement Museum showed us around an apartment unit like that on the Lower East Side that dates to the 1890s. For the workers, yes, I mean, certainly they're, they're being exploited. Their labor's being exploited. It's being sweated, right? Which is where that term, sweatshop, comes from Mm. to some extent, right? And this apartment is, shall we say, snug. It's a 325 square foot apartment. It's all of three rooms. It was the home of an Eastern European Jewish family that made women's clothes in their living room. And um, they lived here beginning in the early 1890s and operated a garment factory out of their home. So this was really, you know, subcontractors in an industry, right, right? Providing labor to sew clothing For this larger industry, so right, they're sort of not designing the garments, they're not cutting the fabric. Somebody else is doing that, generally somebody who's labeled a manufacturer. In this postage stamp-sized apartment, there were two adults plus their three children plus three other adults who would come in and piece the fabric together to make finished garments. Ten hours a day, six days a week. And you thought your job was hard. Oh, and let's not forget that the coal-fired stove had to be kept burning all the time so that the presser had hot iron to smooth out the wrinkles. I'm actually sweating right now just thinking about it. I can just see, like, burns and injuries happening, like... Over and over and over again. Um
2: they getting really hot? Right, and yeah. so, <laughs> so hot. So I know it's hot, hot enough, you know, in a, no, during
5: I'm the summer in like here. A hot summer day. Yep. Oh, absolutely. No, a
0: hot New York summer day. Plus, this this giant oven is on with burning coal. Like, I mean, it would have to be like 150 degrees right, in here. Right. Right. So to sum up, the working conditions in these tenement sweatshops where the shirtwaists were being made were pretty miserable. People were jammed into tiny, lightless, poorly ventilated apartments, hunched over their needles and thread for 10 hours a day. And this was repeated in apartment after apartment all over the neighborhood. Progressive era reformers wanted to get workers out of these tenement factories for human rights and public health reasons. The whole setup was a tuberculosis nightmare. So they agitated for stricter inspection and regulation of these home garment operations. But it wasn't until building technology changed that garment workers moved out of these tenement sweatshops and into proper factories.
6: The thing that had happened between about 1890 and 1910 was that people had figured out how to build buildings taller than you could comfortably walk up. Prior to the elevator and the steel-structured building, you you only had about five-story buildings. Now, all of a sudden, you could build buildings uh, as high as you could imagine.
0: That's David Vondrelli. He's the author of Triangle, the Fire That Changed America.
6: What people realized suddenly was that all of this new vertical real estate could be turned into factories. Modern factories with uh, electrical-powered sewing machines so that workers are no longer having to operate the machines with their feet. Plenty of light from the tall windows so that workers could see what they were doing. Plenty of ventilation. Long tables where workers could work very efficiently instead of the pieces of garments having to be passed around from one tenement to another.
0: The timing of this move to factories couldn't have been better. Professor Jean Parsons says that as women had more income and
4: leisure time, the demand for the shirtwaist spiked. Women's lifestyles were changing. A, f- a few more women were going to college. Uh, women were participating in sports more. Mm-hmm. Single women were becoming wage earners. And then the bicycle came along, and that was a wonderful sport that everybody wanted to participate in, and you needed a slightly more relaxed clothing.
0: Right, right. You're, you're, it's really hard to ride a bike with, like, a boned corset. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying I've tried it, but I'm just saying I'm guessing. I have not tried it. <laughs> so at the turn of the last century, you suddenly had shirtwaists in high demand and technological capabilities to make a lot of them very quickly. And clothing companies were game to make them. They wanted a cut of that sweet, sweet shirtwaist
4: money. But then the other thing that happened was the men's shirt industry saw the beginning signs of... of Sort of trends for women wearing shirts in the, the industry itself thought, well, we can do this. So it's a combination of women were ready and the industry was ready to promote them.
0: By the early 1900s, most of the shirtwaist manufacturing moved out of tenement sweatshops and into modern factories, more than 500 of them in lower Manhattan which is nuts. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was the largest of these manufacturers. It employed around 500 people and was owned by two men, Isaac Harris and Max Blank.
6: Isaac Harris and Max Blank, they're both immigrants from uh, Russia, Jewish immigrants. They went to work in the garment factories themselves and learned those skills and uh, opened up a little shop of their own
0: the pair's operation grew really fast, and soon they were the industry leaders in shirtwaist manufacturing. David Von says he tracked 10 garment companies owned by the men. Their prominence in the biz earned them the nickname the Shirtwaist Kings of New York.
6: Blank and Harris figured out faster than anyone else how to mass produce those blouses at a number of different price points to serve a number of different clienteles. And they got the national distribution, and they were, in a sense, sort of the Levi's of the turn of the century.
0: But being number one has its drawbacks. The competition is always nipping at your heels, and the pressure to innovate and grow can be excruciating. And sometimes that pressure to maintain the top spot means cutting corners. Harrison and Blank began their new lives in America in tenement sweatshops like the kind that David Favaloro described before— That means they survived the worst working conditions in the garment industry. So to them, these new factories with electric sewing machines and big windows and indoor bathrooms seemed pretty
6: swank. You don't have any idea how good you have it. I I think that was their attitude.
0: While conditions might have been better at Triangle than at the tuberculosis dens that Harrison Blank came up in, they're unthinkable today. Girls as young as 14 crouched over sewing machines for a bazillion hours a day, bathroom breaks were few and far between, and the workers were hardly allowed to interact with each other. We know this in part because of all the great oral histories that are out there from former Triangle employees and people involved in the labor movement at the time. Pauline Newman was one of those folks. She was an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. How
2: much conversation among workers was allowed? Uh, or no blessing? conversation and no singing were allowed in the, in the Triangle waste, in the shops in the Triangle Waste Company, and I think it was—it's uh, probably true of all the other shops in those days. Uh, discussion among workers, even. In, Closely as they sat together was not allowed, and when the girls felt like singing, they were not. They were told to uh, be quiet and not and not sing.
0: Still, in the minds of Harrison Blank, their workers had it pretty good, and they didn't have a lot of patience for workers who wanted more, like better pay, safer working conditions, and more reasonable hours. You know the
4: basics, which is what workers started advocating for around 1909 there was something called the uprising of the 20,000 it was a huge walkout by by women women stitchers women in the apparel industry in new york who just said we are done we're we're tired of these bad conditions and low pay and they it, they walked out
0: This strike was massive, but Harris and Blank were unmoved by the strikers' demands. The pair hired thugs and sex workers to harass and attack the women. Many factory workers were beaten, arrested, and hauled into court, only to be trashed by unsympathetic judges. The general strike lasted for four months, and when most of the women went back to work, they were turned to newly unionized shops and were ensured that their demands would be met. But not the triangle workers. Harris and Blank conceded on wages and hours, but they refused to allow workers to unionize.
6: Blank and Harris were notorious as uh, anti-union bosses, and so they did various things to avoid that. One of them was, rather than hire people to operate the sewing machines, they would contract with people to provide the workers, and they would basically lease the sewing machine seats to the contractors who would then pay the seamstresses as a kind of a buffer between them and the workers.
0: So it was like a lot of degrees of separation. These guys, Blank and Harris, they were already the kinds of bosses you probably didn't want as a worker. Like they were never gonna win boss of the year plaques. Shirt demand was huge and Harris and Blank were interested in the bottom line. They were much less interested in worker protections, basic fire safety, and factory inspections. And 146 people paid for that indifference with their lives. We're going to take a quick break when we come back, the disaster that changed the course of American labor. At least until the laissez-faire 80s and the Reagan administration, which never met a regulation it didn't want to dismantle. Plus, do you know where your clothes are made and who's making them? We'll see.
3: Welcome
0: back to Spectacular Failures. I'm Lauren Ober. March 25th, 1911, was a pleasant enough Saturday in New York City. Tenement kids ran circles around each other in Washington Square Park. And fancy couples from the Brownstones around the park strolled arm in arm. Inside the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory overlooking the square, hundreds of workers, mostly young women, assembled garments. Some worked on collars, others worked on cuffs. All were looking forward to getting out of there for the day.
6: They were getting to the end of the day, about 4.40, when the quitting bell was going to ring at 4.45. They were wrapping up on the eighth floor, and these cutters that I talked about, who were so difficult to discipline, were probably having an end-of-the-day cigarette, even though there were signs all over the factory saying no smoking.
0: That's our pal David Vondrelli. The cutters he mentioned were the guys who literally cut the fabric into patterns. Their job was considered highly skilled, so they were kind of a BFD at the factory. That meant they did what they wanted. Rules be damned. Pauline Pepe worked on the eighth floor at the time alongside the cutters. She knew they ignored the no smoking rule all the time.
2: As soon as they get through, they let a cigarette. I <laughs> said, someday this is going to the- be on fire. And sure it did. Did you see them doing that a lot, that they'd they'd smoke in the room? They must have thrown the match or something. That's where it started when they left.
6: Under their cutting tables were these bins that they would sweep the scraps into, and they were piled with hundreds of pounds of highly flammable cotton fabric and tissue paper.
0: Combine that with all the oil from the various machines in the factory, and you have a highly combustible environment. All you need is a spark.
6: The best guess is that a match or a cigarette ash went into one of these bins and it exploded really like a firebomb.
0: The fire began on the 8th floor, but workers on that floor saw it happen and were able to escape the blaze using the elevators and the narrow stairs. Somebody called up to the 10th floor and alerted the executives up there, including the factory's owners, Isaac Harris and Max Blank. They ran up to the roof and over to an adjacent building. That left the workers on the ninth floor.
6: They didn't realize that there was a fire burning beneath them until the bell rang and the machine stopped and they started to hear screaming below and started to see flames uh, rising outside the windows.
0: There was absolute panic on the ninth floor. Some workers were able to scramble down the open staircase, but pretty soon it was consumed with smoke and flames. Those who could made a break for the elevators, but it was total chaos. Dora Meisler worked on the eighth floor as a sample maker. She described the pandemonium of trying to escape via the elevators.
2: They were really screaming and burning, so I, I held them up and I pushed everybody back. And I and I raised my, with my foot, I broke the, the, the window, you know, there was a window in the door. And that was the time he came up.
5: The
0: The operators managed as many trips as they could before the elevator was overcome by the conflagration. Escape options were getting fewer and fewer.
6: And with the one exit cut off by flame and now this other exit cut off, there was one stairwell remaining. But unfortunately, that door was locked. Factory management Lock that door at closing time every day so that all the workers would have to leave through the Green Street exit where they could uh, be searched, to have their handbags searched by the night watchmen to make sure that they weren't stealing any garments or fabric or buttons.
0: Harrison Blank created undeniably dangerous working conditions. And then, in order to prevent theft, they locked their workers inside the building. But during the criminal trial that followed the fire, the owners admitted they lost very little due to workers' sticky fingers, not even $600 in today's money. With the elevators knocked out, the one open stairwell blocked by flames, and the other stairs locked, workers had just one remaining route to safety, a fire escape outside one of the windows. A crush of people rushed the ladder, but only a few were able to make it down to the lower floors. Within a matter of minutes, the heat from the fire, coupled with the volume of bodies on the ladder, pulled the fire escape right off the building, with desperate factory workers still clinging to it. For remaining workers, there was no way out. They could either succumb to the smoke and fire or jump to their deaths. Dozens chose the latter. Survivor Pauline Pepe witnessed the aftermath of those impossible decisions.
2: What was going on downstairs when you came down? What did you see when you came down from the people old bodies come oh, oh it was terrible we got sick we had we had the men took us away right away see- the sidewalks around
0: the building were embedded with tiny glass windows that brought light into the basement factory below
2: you know those little glasses yeah the bed lights they went right through that the glass now, can in you the imagine? and you yeah, saw that yeah. You saw the people, oh, when I think of all those girls getting engaged to be married, oh, I felt terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a sight to see.
0: Frances Perkins, a 31-year-old activist and social worker, was having tea at a townhouse just off the park when she heard the fire alarms. She bundled up her skirt, flew out the
2: door, and ran towards the inferno. I happened to have been visiting a friend in the park on the other side of the park and we heard the engines and we heard the screams and rushed out and rushed over where we could see the, the trouble was we could see this building from Washington Square and the people had just begun to jump when we got there uh, they'd been holding until that time standing in the sills, crowding it, be, being crowded by others behind them and, and um, uh, the fire pressing closer and closer the smoke closer and closer
0: Within a half an hour, the fire was out, leaving the building's top three floors to smolder in the early evening. 146 workers were dead, 123 women and 23 men. It was the worst workplace accident in New York City's history, and it was entirely preventable. Up to that point, industrial accidents that caused death and dismemberment, what we would consider pretty big failures, were commonplace in big American cities, Railroad cars derailed, pots of molten steel tipped over, coal dust ignited in mines. All pretty nasty stuff. But no disaster spurred people to action the way the Triangle fire did. By 1911, the labor movement had been picking up steam and had laid the foundation for sweeping changes in American workplaces. But they weren't there yet. They needed a catalyst. Anne says Shauna Bader Blau, executive director of the Solidarity Center, the tragedy at Triangle was it. The
5: Triangle Shirtwaist Factory tragedy is understood today in historical terms as a turning point for an industry in which workers then fought back, built power, changed conditions, and frankly organized to expand democracy for more and more working people. And that led up to the New Deal.
0: It wasn't just that many people, mostly young, poor immigrant women, had died. It was that the fire created the perfect confluence of social and political movements.
6: Women were demanding a place at the table. Workers were organizing into unions. And the progressive movement was bringing this idea of measuring outcomes and threats and dangers and the idea that the government might actually have a role In making life uh, safer and fairer and uh, more equitable. All these things coming together in New York, in the garment industry around 1909, 1910, 1911, that's what produced the change.
0: Remember Frances Perkins, the woman who witnessed the fire from the park? The tragedy kicked her into high gear, and she went on to become head of New York City's Committee on Safety. Later, she led a state committee that oversaw the passage of 60 new labor laws and regulations in New York State.
2: Uh, so that we, got, we really got a big draw out of that one uh, episode, which, as I've thought of it afterwards, seems in some way to have paid the debt that society owed to those children, those young people who lost their lives in the Triangle Fire. It's their contribution to the people of New York that we have this really magnificent series of, of legislative acts to protect and improve the administration of the law regarding the protection of work people in the city, of in the state of New York.
0: You got to love that old rich lady voice, right? A great now, Frances Perkins went on to become the country's first female cabinet secretary. As head of the Department of Labor and total badass, she helped lay the foundation for an expansion of workers' rights and protections nationwide, Policies she pushed for allowed for greater unionizing and collective bargaining and the establishment of a minimum
5: wage. And for many decades afterwards, we saw the growth of the labor movement and the widening of the American middle class.
0: Union garment factories in the U.S. became the norm, and you'd be a total jerkwad if you bought clothes that weren't American-made. To that end, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union was on the scene in the 70s and 80s making some pretty catchy commercials.
2: Look- The Union Label
0: Look for the Union label is truly an iconic work of American songcraft. However, it wasn't enough to stem the tide of that little thing called globalization. And most of those jobs that the delightful multicultural garment worker choir was singing about, yeah, they left. They scooted on out of America to countries like Bangladesh and Haiti, and most recently Ethiopia, where worker protections are practically non-existent and where wages are as low as just a few dollars a
5: day. Around the world, we see the growth from the 1980s on of the outsourcing of apparel sector jobs to poorer and poorer countries, many of whom are struggling right newly out of colonialism, mm-hmm. building their own democracies from scratch, often exploited historically uh, by many global corporations and foreign governments, Mm -hmm. and not with 100% of the tools to push back.
0: Now, I always assumed that most of my clothes weren't made in America. That's why they're relatively cheap. But I never really stopped to think much about where they were made or who was making them. So I decided to go back in the closet to check out my wardrobe. Okay, made in China, made in Turkey, made in India, made in... What is that? I can't even read that. Almost all the shirts I flipped through were made in the same handful of Asian countries. Now, that could be because I'm basic as hell and I'm buying a lot of cheap mall brand clothing. Though I do have a good shoe game, so I thought maybe some of those might be American made. Okay, God, I got to get down low for this. Got to. Shoes are in the rack. Okay, India made in the Dominican Republic. Those are boat shoes. Don't tell anybody I wear those, though. And just uh, when I was about to give up... Okay, 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 great news. Great news, everybody. I found I found one thing. I found the one thing that I own that is made in America. They are- a pair of Wolverine boots straight from Rockford, Michigan. Embarrassingly, after 15 minutes of looking, I turned up just one other American-made article of clothing in my closet. A wool jacket from Vermont... Except for those two items, all my other clothes were likely made by a young woman from one of the many developing countries I named. She's probably working way longer than a 40-hour work week, and she's making next to nothing. If my H&M shirt costs $25, on average the woman who made it earned just 15 cents. Dorothy baumann polly is the research director at the NYU Center for Business and Human Rights, and she's been studying the global garment industry for a decade. She says big brands like Nike and Levi's are starting to take some responsibility to fix labor issues abroad. But most of them don't own the factories that make their clothes. Their supply chains are so sprawling it can be hard to keep tabs on things.
2: You know, sending inspectors to factories to go through a checklist of items sort of once, maybe twice a year, is not a way to change practices. It's just a way to, at best, um, surface um, things that go wrong. But it often doesn't give you an idea of why things are not going right.
0: The safety issues of today's global garment industry are a real problem. And they're not that different than what Frances Perkins and her ilk fought to fix in the early 1900s like a hundred years ago. In 2013, a garment factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh, collapsed. The building that collapsed had two
2: illegal floors. Um, The building was built on marshland, and on those two illegal floors, they placed huge diesel generators, heavy machinery, and the rattling of that machinery eventually affected the integrity of the building, and uh, it collapsed. It was the single worst disaster
0: in the history of the garment industry. More than 1,100 people died, and twice that many were injured. Workers had pointed out cracks in the building the day before the collapse, but the building owner ignored the warnings. More than 100 years later, Rana Plaza wasn't that different than Triangle. Plenty of folks had pointed out potential hazards at the shirtwaist factory long before disaster struck. Survivor Max Hockfield.
5: The flaws were wooden flaws and they was soaked through with oil. The baskets to keep the work was a uh, vicar basket, and these baskets contained about uh, four to five dozen uh, blouses, lingerie that time, lace. How long did it take to catch fire? Mm-hmm. That was a real fire trap. It was a real fire trap.
0: Isaac Harris and Max Blank were put on trial for the deaths of the 146 workers in their factory. But the pair were acquitted of manslaughter charges and, in fact, made out pretty good in the aftermath. Despite ignoring fire safety practices and locking workers inside the building, Harris and Blank got a tidy insurance settlement to cover their losses. And they continued to run garment factories around the city. Two years after the blaze, Max Blank was arrested again for locking workers inside his factory. It's as if the magnitude of what had happened never registered with the people responsible. But it did register with all those garment workers and their allies. It galvanized movement and it changed the country. But today, the global garment industry still has a long way to go. We like wearing the hottest new looks without the hassle of making them ourselves. And we want them to cost practically nothing, but look like they're really expensive. And that insatiable appetite that drives the fast fashion world today, just like the shirtwaists of ye olde times, is only growing. So the next time you want to buy that cute little top or those cool-ass sneakers, think about the girl who made them and how she's not that different than the folks who died at Triangle all those years ago. Spectacular Failures is a production of American Public Media in the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. It's hosted and produced by me, Fantastic Gaff, Lauren Ober. Remarkable tour de force, Whitney Jones is the show's producer. Our editor is the best-dressed lady in public radio, Phyllis Fletcher. Our theme music is by the delightful David Schulman. Other original music in the show comes from the Jeremys, Jeremy Castillo and Jeremy Ray. Lauren D. is the interim director of podcasts at APM. Our other stellar APM buds include Alyssa Dudley, Tracy Mumford, and Christina Lopez. Big love to the Marketplace DC Bureau, especially Betsy Streisand. Much appreciation to our amateur voiceover actor extraordinaire, Jess Levy. Shout out to the Max and Frieda Weinstein archive of YIVO Sound Recordings, and the Industrial and Labor Relations School at Cornell University for their excellent Triangle archives. Super special thanks to Dennis Kroner, the best public safety officer at NYU, for using his lunch break to show us around. And to the Tenement Museum, which you should totally visit if you want a super gritty New York City experience. Don't eat the paint, right? No, you don't want to get lead poisoning. No, I'm pretty sure I don't want to do that. Although I think you have to eat a lot of it in order to get poisoned awesome. as an adult. So, you know, we have a... And now for your weekly Helping of Biz Whiz from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Today, we've got some business wisdom from Sandy Yu, who's an assistant professor in the Strategic Management and Entrepreneurship Department. Professor Yu says there is such a thing as a good failure. Lucky for us. I think the good
3: failure is when you don't make the same mistake twice. So if you don't learn from that first failure, then you end up staying in the same place. So failing forward, I think, encompasses this idea of making progress as a result of that failure.
0: Hey friends, Lauren here. Did you know that Spectacular Failures has a newsletter? Get out. No, we do. Each week, we'll send out behind-the-scenes extras from episodes, weekly team recommendations for things we love, a sneak preview of upcoming episodes, and other fun stuff. You can sign up now at spectacularfailures.org slash newsletter.